Hello, this is Bill Chambers, and welcome to another episode of the Faster Podcast. My objective is to interview world-class performers to discover how it is that they do what they do, what makes them unique and fascinating, their success mindset, habits, and behaviors, and share these insights to challenge and inspire you. My guest today is well known in the world of sports science and considered an expert in this subject. Originally born in Zimbabwe, he grew up in South Africa studying medicine and exercise science. He is the author of several books on exercise and nutrition, including The Law of Running and Challenging Beliefs, and has over 750 scientific articles being cited over 19,000 times. In 2008, he was elected an honorary fellow of the Faculty of Sports and Exercise Medicine in the UK. And in 2015, he was made an honorary fellow of the Faculty of Sports and Exercise Medicine, the Royal College of Physicians of Ireland, in recognition for his involvement in the field of sports and exercise medicine. My guest today, on top of all of that, has run over 70 marathons and enjoyed rowing whilst at university in South Africa. Now we have to dig into that. My guest today is Professor Tim Notes. Welcome, Tim. Thank you so much, Bill. That was a wonderful introduction. I can't wait to get down to discussing rowing and how it changed my life and how rowing actually made me understand. You talked about the central governor model, but when I had rowed and then when I thought about it and certain events in my rowing career, that kind of also confirmed the central governor theory. So I look forward to this discussion. Me too. We'll, we'll get into that in a moment because I'm really excited to understand, being a novice on this from an expert, how the brain regulates performance. Yet, before we begin, how would you describe what it is, what you do? Well, I, I'm now seven years into retirement. So, so what I do is I'm kind of finishing up all the things that remain undone. And I, two days ago, I started on the fifth revision of law of running. So that's quite a change. So essentially, I became a medical doctor at the time of the 1970s when sports science was really just beginning around the world. It, before that time, it was, a, it was really a non-entity. And it was beautiful because you could know all about sports, nutrition, uh, sports uh, science. You could understand the whole field. Now it's so complex and it's diverse. You don't have a global picture anymore. So I was very fortunate that I was right there at the bottom when it started. And I had a fantastic career in sports science until 2010, when unfortunately this book arrived on my, on my, <laughs> came into Oh my, my goodness. So for the <laughs> listeners, that's the, the new Aitkins for a new you. So having written in law of running that carbohydrates were absolutely essential for being healthy I read this book and said, well, how could I not have known this data, these, this evidence? But it was completely hidden. It was the mainstream medicine just hides this sort of information. So anyway, I read the book and two hours later, I decided that's it, no more carbohydrates. And my health returned very dramatically and my athletic performance improved spectacularly. And that became a problem because I then started writing about it. People saw that I lost weight. They said, have you got cancer? You're looking so good. You must, have, you must be dying from cancer. So I said, no, I changed my diet and I'm now eating fat instead of carbohydrates. But that'll kill you. Your cholesterol will shoot through the roof, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
Well, 10 years later, I'm looking, okay, I'm doing fine. And I've reversed my type 2 diabetes. So, so, but unfortunately, that caused me to be essentially thrown out of my university. And my profession put me through a four-year trial for promoting unconventional ideas and unconventional dietary advice that would kill millions of children. That was the charge. I was killing millions wow. of children. Meanwhile, I know I've saved millions of people's lives from this dietary advice. And so then I went through that. And so I had to go through this writing books and learning about nutrition because I thought I knew all about nutrition, but I spent the last 10, 11 years writing books on that. So we wrote the book called Law of Nutrition, also published overseas as uh, the real food on trial, which is really interesting, real food. And it says how the, the diet dictators tried to destroy a top scientist. And that's what they tried to do. The goal was to destroy my credibility so that the diet would be buried. Well, that didn't work. I won the case 13-0 after 26, 28 days in court, which is over four years. It was an amazing experience. So now I've almost, I've just, we've just published another book called The Eat Right Revolution, which is kind of a short book. It's a little bit, little, little bit longer than Eric Westman's book, but uh, it's kind of, conceptualize where the problems arise in our bad nutrition and how we can change it. So having been freed to some extent from the nutrition story, I'm going back to, to sport and looking back. And so I've taken the last edition of Law of Running, which I wrote in 2002, that is 20 years ago. And it's fantastic. I'm going, starting, and I'm just saying, okay, I'm rewriting the book from page one to page 900, it's 930 pages. I'm not trying to edit that. I'm rewriting the thing completely. Wow. Because, yeah. Oh, it's another marathon. Yeah, <laughs> but it's, it's exciting. You know, it's exciting to get back into something that was such a part of my life for 30 odd years. So Tim, how did you get started? You, were originally, you started as a medical doctor and then you did exercise science. And I believe you had, was there a mentor or an ins a person of inspiration along the way? You know, you're not going to believe this, and I'm so glad that this is a rowing discussion because this is exactly what happened. So I go to medical, so, so in 1968, I go to America for a year as an exchange student, have a fantastic year, unbelievable. I was in Los Angeles for the year at Huntington Park High School, and it was unbelievable. Yeah, the, one of the great years of my life, and it was 1968 when everything changed. And of course, 1968 was also the Olympics at altitude, so that's another story. But on the last day of, as we graduated, I asked my best friend, I said, what sport are you going to do when you go to college? And he said, he's going to do crew, i.e. rowing. I said, you know, that's an amazing idea. I think I'll try it. So when I went to the University of Cape Town, the first thing I did was I signed up for rowing. So we started rowing. And after about two months, the Olympic coach for the British Olympic team came to Cape Town and gave us an evening lecture. Can you believe it? What's Yes, Ralston. I, I forget his first name. In fact, I've got a book written by him, a training book, which is a slim book. It, Jim Ralston, I think it was. Jim Ralston. Okay. Jim Ralston. So now, but here's the moment. He now gives us a lecture and he goes up to the blackboard and he draws an X and a Y, an axis and a Y axis. And on the X axis is distance you rode and the Y axis is your blood lactate concentration. And he says, you see, when you start, your lactate's very low. But as you go through the race, your lactate shoots up. And at 1,000 meters, it's already 10 millimoles or something. And he says, that's why you feel so bad. 
And literally, I went out of that lecture and I walked down the avenue at the university. And I said, that's what I'm going to study for my life. Wow. That's how it all started. And ironically, we were able to prove that his theory wasn't quite right. It's not the lactate that's, that's causing fatigue. And that then led to other things. But that literally was what, so when I did my medical training, because I was in first year medicine, I really had very little interest in chronic disease. I, my whole interest was in people keep, keeping people healthy because I saw all these great doctors. They can treat the sick people, but we need people to treat the healthy people and make people healthy. And so then as I, I went from rowing, I went into running, and then that's, that kind of took over for many years. But that, that made me realize that, uh, that sport is really terribly important in this country and many countries. And I decided I wanted to start the sports sciences in South Africa. And so that's what I did and had a fantastic career, which as I've indicated, went for 25, 30 years until suddenly I've made the error of going into nutrition. <laughs> well, Tim, I, I think uh, it's still, your career is still going and got a long way to go. If you're a rower, you're at the thousand meter mark. <laughs> so Tim, what led you to, to dig into this or to dig into how the brain regulates performance? You, you talked about how Ralston was showing you, you know, the AV Hill theory of, of fatigue, I guess, but maybe you could just go dig in a little, go back a little bit to the start, talk about how you started to challenge beliefs around how the brain regulates. Yeah, it's actually quite simple because when we started, we had no equipment. We had absolutely nothing. And so I had to start in the, right at the bottom. And eventually we got an oxygen analyzer. Now, if you couldn't measure oxygen, you weren't a proper physiologist, exercise physiologist. So we managed to get an antiquated system, but we had to work it ourselves and make the calculations ourselves. We didn't have the printouts that you get today. So we would do these experiments and we were told that we would see this plateau phenomenon and as Hill described it. So in other words, if we put an athlete on a treadmill, made them run faster and faster, the oxygen consumption would rise and then it would reach this plateau. And as Hill said, however much effort you put in, you couldn't increase the oxygen consumption. So unfortunately we could never find it because we were using these antiquated systems where we actually had to measure, we had to calculate every value. And we were looking for it and we could never find it or we found it very infrequently. And at that time, if you published a paper and you said, I measured the VO2 max of this athlete, you had to say that you showed the plateau phenomenon because otherwise they'd say, well, you didn't actually measure the VO2 max. So we would say we, we couldn't see the, the plateau. Slowly, I started talking about this at Conference Marin College of Sports Medicine and got more and more interested and eventually I was asked to give the 1996 J.B. Wolf lecture, which was starts the conference. And because I was a generalist, I, I thought, what can I talk about that will be of interest to all this very diverse group of scientists and doctors? And I said, well, I'll look at, I'll challenge four or five ideas that are present in the exercise science, which I don't believe. And the first one was a plateau phenomenon. I said, you know, there's no evidence that the plateau phenomenon really exists. And if it doesn't exist, then oxygen isn't the cause of the problem or oxygen lack something else happens to be going on. And so I thought that there were some other chemicals that were released in the muscle and for some reason it failed. And so I wrote this article with all the five challenging beliefs and, and I published it. And then it's funny, a year later, I was in Helsinki giving a lecture to the Finnish exercise scientists. And you know, the Finns are a little different. And so as I'm about to get up to give the lecture, 
the guy who invites me hands me the latest edition, Medicine and Science in Sports and Exercise System. Just before you go up, you might want to look at this article. You see, so I'm literally about to go up. And there it is. Noakes is completely wrong. All his theories are wrong. And the Hill is correct. And Noakes is completely wrong. And that was the article. You see, I'll look at that later. <laughs> so anyway. I think so. I went, I went up and gave the lecture. And then, you know, I thank goodness that those people wrote that article because it, may, it challenged you. And that's what you have to be. So I said, well, okay, let me go back and see what A.B. Hill actually said. And I was the first guy in 60 years or 70 years who went back and read exactly what he said. And what he said was the following. He said that the muscles don't run out of oxygen, the heart runs out of oxygen. And then he said he knew, he understood that if the heart runs out of oxygen, the body's going to die. So he said, then either the heart or the brain slows the function of the heart, and so you don't have a heart attack or you die suddenly during exercise. And he said he called it a governor. So he said, there's this governor. It's either in the heart or in the brain, which slows the heart to protect it. Now, as a cardio training cardiology, I knew that's not how you protect the heart. The way you protect the heart is to prevent the muscles from working. That's the key. Yeah, so it's, it's you regulate the muscle recruitment, right? Ab exactly right. Yeah. And so then I said, that's it. That's the model. That's the central governor. And so that was now 1996. And then over the next 10 years, we thought about it. We did the research and published the first papers in about 2004, 2003, 2004. And in fact, presented them at the American College of Sports Medicine to, to quite a lot of, there was very little criticism then. It's kind of like people said, well, it's so obvious. We can't find it anymore. We just have to, we just ignore it. <laughs> Pretend it doesn't exist. So that's how it came about. And then... My colleague made the point that the fatigue you feel is purely an emotion. And now that was also an, a key finding or a key observation that, that you have these emotions that are there to protect you. Because if you didn't have those emotions, you wouldn't feel the fatigue and you would carry on and you would die. So that was another important breakthrough. So essentially what we said is that the body, the brain is there to protect you from dying during exercise under whatever condition, high altitude, or in the heat particularly, that if you're exercising in the heat, the brain will say, hold on, it's too hot for us to set the world marathon record today, we're gonna to slow down. Mm -hmm. And from the first step, you will be slower or shortly thereafter, you'll slow down. So that's the prediction. And we did those experiments. We've had people exercise in the heat and from the word go, they slowed, they were going slower. And then, Another experiment where we linked the ratings of perceived exertion, which is how you feel about the exercise. And we used an experiment where we, we said people exercise at a rating of perceived exertion, I think it was about 14. And we put them in the heat and they, from, from the first pedal stroke, they were slower. So the brain was already saying, this is too hard for me now. I'm not going to go as fast as I did in the cult. So, I mean, that really proved that there's this anticipatory component. So that anticipation is the brain making all those calculations for the current situation environment. So do under, so as an example, if I'm not that fit, I haven't been training through winter, I've got a long run ahead of me. It's already calculating the fact that I haven't done much training, the length, the effort that I've got to do. So it's, uh, are you saying or explaining that the brain is already telling the body or shaping how the body will regulate its performance? Uh absolutely and that's the only reason how humans have survived 
to have this brain that protects us in unusual circumstances. So that's and that so primitive protective yeah. mechanism that we're geared to conserve calories, survive, and be ready to to flee at any moment. Is, is that absolutely. Kind of the I think you know, coming from Africa, there's there's such good evidence that the early hominids were were hunters, and that they would hunt, they would chase the animals until the animal overheated. And it didn't help you to catch the animal and be exhausted because you still got to carry it the 20 kilometers you run to catch it. You got to take it. Yeah. So, so that was, and you know, when you watch races, you watch Olympic marathons where you'd imagine that there's a lot of intensity there and you'd expect the guy to collapse at the finish. They don't collapse. And, but more importantly, the second guy doesn't collapse and he doesn't die. And that tells you that he's protected because why didn't he just run faster? And the answer was if he had, he would have died. So, he makes a choice. I'd rather come second than die. <laughs> so, so, so could you talk to me a little bit more then, Tim, about the brain is going through some kind of pacing strategy. Yeah. Uh, and especially in rowing, we know it's an, inc it's an incredible exertion for master's rows, somewhere between three and a half and four and a half minutes. We know what it feels like, right? We've done the rowing on the rowing machine or on the water. So we know what the, the pain looks like. So could you talk to me a little bit about what's going on in the head with regards to pacing? I think the listeners would really be curious to understand more so they can take those insights to, to create some strategies for themselves. Well, you know, the race that really interests me is Oxford and Cambridge boat race over, you know, four and a half miles or so. And you rode at the same pace you'd rode 2,000 meters or you start at 2,000 meters and you keep going. Now that's impossible. I mean, I, you know... I, in my mind, I stopped at 2,000 meters. I couldn't have made that. But you, you can convince yourself and the coach can convince you that you can do it. And that's essentially what happens in those races, that you have to convince their oarsmen that they can go the full four and a half miles without worrying that at 2,000 meters, actually you're feeling finished, you're completely exhausted, but you keep going on. And then near the end, you're going to have to, may have to sprint, et cetera. So that's all conditioning. That's all it is. And in a sense, it's the same in the Tour de France. If you've got to be conditioned to do six hours a day of exercise for 21 days. And that takes a lot of conditioning. And of course, it takes selection. You've got to select other people who can do it and who are prepared to do it. So, so that's what your training really is doing. You think you're training to get your muscles strong and build up your endurance and so on. But no, no, I think you're building up the mental capacity and the belief that you can do it. And that's really what you're doing. And of course, it's hard and it will be hard until something changes and, and you, can, you accept you can do it. So that's what you're training for. And that's why it's so difficult to prepare for that three or four minutes training exercises because you're convincing your brain and yourself that you can do it. And, and I don't know if understanding that helps, but that's really what's happening. And sorry, and let me make one, one other point. So... My most recent PhD student was, was a genius, a little guy called, not a little guy, a medical doctor called Andreas Venhorst. And you might want to go to the website of the University of Cape Town. If you type in Venhorst, V-E-N-H-O-R-S-T, you'll see his thesis. And I mean, it's just, it's one of the best pieces of work that I was ever involved with. Now, now he was a really interesting guy because he was a world-class triathlete, but he would come to the triathlon and he would look who was entered and he'd say, I can't beat that guy, I can't beat that guy, I'm going to finish sixth. And he said he finished six every time. He would always finish exactly where he predicted he would finish. That's where he finished, except one day. He was predicting himself he would come six. And suddenly he was running with now 20 kilometers to go in the run. And the number five ahead of him dropped out. So he said, gosh, I'm now fifth. 
And then number four dropped out, then number three dropped out, and eventually he was winning the race. And he said it was the easiest race he ever had. He just sprinted the last 10 kilometers. And he said, then I realized the brain's rather important in this process. So he, he looked at the psychology of how people cope with chronic pain and so on. And he said that there's models well described in the literature about how humans cope with chronic disease, chronic pain. And that's very simple. There are three components. The first component is the sensations you feel. And in this case, it's when you're exercising. So you're breathing hard and your respiration's hard and the muscles are a little bit sore. So that's all information that's telling you how hard you're exercising. But that's not really important. What's important is how you respond to it. It's your emotion. Mm. And what we, he was able to show was that the moment your emotion changes from positive to negative, you're done. You're finished. And that's exactly what happens when you get past in a race or in rowing. Why is it in rowing that the, the crew that wins is never exhausted? They finish and they're all upright and so on. But the team that comes second is finished. And why is it that's so difficult to come from second to first in rowing? There can't be many sports which are more difficult to come from second to first. And, and that to me is all mental side. Anyway, so what he is able to show that in a, if you race people against each other, the moment the one guy starts dropping back, his emotion changes and that's fatal. And then finally is the action crisis. And that's now when you start dropping back, the action crisis is you ask, is it worth continuing to, because I've got another mile to race against Cambridge. They're a, they're a, me, they're a, a length ahead. Am I really interested in this race? And that's when you, that's when the decision comes and you choose either to win or to lose from that station. And so people say you hit the wall and so on, you don't, you, it's an action crisis and you make the active decision that this is impossible today. Whereas the opposition, the winners, they say, no, we're going to win this race and we're going to continue. They're on the opposite side of the emotion then. The winners yeah. are elated. They can smell victory. The emotion going through the person that may be physically as capable Absolutely. is not at the same level. So yeah. I'm interested to understand, have you done any observations of athletes of equal physiological capability and how much they actually had in reserve at the end of a race even though they may have broken a world record or won the yeah. race. Have, have you had any observations or learnings on what's left in the well, tank? I, I can just tell you that there's always lots left in the tank. So I'm, I'm sitting in my office here and I, there's one of the, I've got one beautiful rowing picture, which tells the whole story of rowing in one picture. And so I'm going to go show and me. show it to you. And it was signed by the coach, the Oxford coach, Dan Topolsky. Because oh, this was his greatest rowing crew, he said. This was the crew that most impressed him. And I mean, you, I know you'll know the story. And, and here's the photo. So let's hope we can see it. I can't really tell if you can see it. Yeah, there we go. Oh, yes. Yes. This yeah. famous picture. Now, this is the only picture you'll ever, ever see of a crew that wins and is exhausted, completely finished. And, and what crew, year was that, Tim? Was that the, it was the, 1981 the boycott? The boycott year when the, Topolsky got rid of uh, some of the crew. No, it was even better than that. So, so you're quite right. They're, they're, this was True Blue, the book. That was the one where uh -huh. they had the revolution. But this you can read about in Boat Race. That's, this is, let me just get this organized. This you can read in, in 
The boat so race. that's boat race, the Oxford Revival. That's right. That's correct. And he said this was his greatest crew. And the reason was that the bow oarsman, well, let me get who's it Who's prostrate in that photo. That's right. <laughs> he stopped rowing with a mile to go. And the cocks noticed it, but no one else, not even the people watching the race, noticed it. And he stopped rowing. And at that time, Oxford was leading by one length and had a mile to go as they went under the bridge. Oh, my goodness. Barnes Bridge. <laughs> and the Cox just said to them, guys, Cambridge is coming back at us. And those guys rode a mile for seven guys and they beat the other crew with eight guys. Now, it's difficult to know what that means, but you may remember in an Oxford-Cambridge boat race a few years ago, the Oxford lost their one oar. The one guy broke his oar. And Cambridge went through them in about 20 strokes. They were gone. And, that's, and this crew hung in for a whole mile. And he said that was the greatest performance he'd ever seen. So that's the point. That's the reserve that you have. But that, those guys got closer to the end of the reserve. And that's why they were so much more exhausted than if they'd won the race under normal circumstances. Amazing story. And I'm, I'm very blessed to know Dr. Tom Caddo-Hudson, who wrote in that the, the book was made uh, True Blue. <laughs> Uh, they tells a great story. Coming back to, to present day, I was listening to the current world record holder for the two kilometre, Mr. Josh Dunkley-Smith from Australia, multiple Olympian and world champion, clearly has Olympian physiology. <laughs> he went about breaking a, a, a world record on the rowing machine that stood for 10 years by Rob Waddell from New Zealand. They did a five kilometer test a, a few months before and unbeknownst, they broke the world record for the 5k. And yeah. Josh explains that he just walked out, spoke with the physiologist and he didn't ask what pace he recommended. He said, this is what I feel like doing today. It was a one minute 31 split for five kilometers on the rowing machine. Neither knew there was a world record. Yeah, yeah. Getting through that, one of the coaches observed, wow, uh, my goodness, he's going to break the world record and started filming it. And he finished on the machine and just kind of sat around and job done. <laughs> they then went to do the, the two-kilometer effort. And he said that after 800 meters, he knew that he had it. Yeah. And that was on the third attempt. The previous two attempts... He, he was challenged. He either went out, he said he went out too hard or he didn't quite feel right. But he said, I know what I can do and we'll just see what the outcome is. So he yeah. let go of the outcome. Now, yeah. that's a nice story as reality. But in some sense, is the matter of the central governor setting the appropriate goal, letting go of the outcome and just focusing on doing what you're doing, knowing that you're not going to die that the small voice in your head is just saying quit because it's protecting right. you and you just, just go through it. Yeah, absolutely. I'd love to, to examine more what happened after 800 meters to, to 2000 meters and his ex exactly thoughts, what his exact thoughts were. And I'll share with you the podcast because he goes into quite detail. Yeah. I'll, I'll, yeah. I'll email it to you. But I, what we do know is that they would be neutral or positive, his opinions. And the fact that he's decided he's already won it, that's always going to break the world record. That's critical information. Yeah. You have to, you know, you have to understand why. That's the whole story. You've got to understand why you're doing it. Then the how becomes easy. So he had a reason to do it that was better than anyone else's. And he'd worked on it for a long time. 
and thought about it and eventually and he had the physiology to do it but you know you come back to the physiology there are probably 10 15 20 other athletes in the world who have exactly the same physiology so it's not it's not the physiology that makes the difference it's it's what's going on in your head and and people elite athletes are, are, just, are they different they've got to have the physiology but they have to have this extra component in the mind it's interesting chatting to the coach of the Oxford crew, he said, you know, we used to think that the big guys rode a boat better over four miles. And he said, we don't think so anymore. They used to go, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking out of turn now because I'm not an expert, but that's what he said. They don't, in the old days, they used to look for the hundred, whatever, hundred kilogram guys, six foot four, six foot five. But he's found that the smaller guys can sustain the effort at least as well over four miles. And they don't go for the huge guys as they used to. And I don't know whether that's, that applies that's been found at, at world level but again this is a four mile race it's not not a 2000 meters yeah i think i think it's a, a bit of a balance isn't it I, I remember listening to one of the australian selectors that said if you're over 95 kilograms you better well be going below six minutes and well below six minutes on an ergometer because you've got to carry your weight yeah, a little bit yeah. different to cycling of course but uh, it's interesting that you talk uh, you've talked in some of your interviews about performances on the tour de france and you also made the comparison with uh, roger bannister breaking uh, the the four minute mile in unbelievably poor conditions on a cinder track and it was raining and his coach made it explicit to him that he actually could go a lot faster he thought he could do a 356 and probably to this day i remember from one of your talks i think bannister was unsure of <laughs> whether he was telling a fib and just yeah. trying to sell him on it or not and then very Soon after, it was some other athletes like Landy yeah. that broke the hook. Could you explain a little bit of what's going on there with the dynamic? Yeah, I think that the reality is you're born and you, and you become interested in the sport and you know what the world record is. So you know that you just have to beat that by 0.1 of a second. You don't have to beat it by a minute. I think the best is that the pole vaulter over the years, remember the, the Russian pole vaulter, he used to beat the record by half a centimeter and he kept doing it for about 10 years because he didn't have to break the record by a centimeter or just had to nudge the record. And that's the reality. So you begin, you take the, the two-hour marathon project, which, which I found really interesting. So that they, they had guys coming from 203 down to two hours. You know, just before it was run, I said, they're not going to break two hours. They're going to run two hours 30. Because I thought that three-minute gap was just too big. But once they got to, to two hours and 30 seconds, breaking the two hours was now quite much easier. Of course, they had everything going right for them, but that's still, you have to run that speed. And you have to believe you can run that speed for, for, 21, for 26 miles. So don't tell me, it, you know, people say, oh, well, he had so much support. No, no, he still had to run. He still had to do yeah, the job. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. But Tim, don't you think that all that support generated amazing confidence because you yeah. had the the machine of Ineos and Jim Ratcliffe and Sir Dave Brailsford they had people resurfacing the road even technicians of camber on the corners they had the the right shoes the fluid all this generated enormous uh, momentum and mental yeah. support and I remember I think it was Chip Corgi said that one of the reasons why he didn't feel as though he performed at his best at the Monza for the Nike oh. breaking two was that he didn't have the support and the cheering of the crowd and oh. the real crowd, not a bought-in crowd. Whereas in Vienna, that atmosphere of the people on the street 
lifted him. They were yeah. his words. But he yeah. also said, I always believed I could do it. You know, that was uh -huh. so correct. Well, you're quite correct. He, everything was absolutely perfect. But you'll see he wasn't tired at the end. He was, he was speeding up in the last... He was elated. Yeah, he sprinted yeah. the last 200 yeah. metres. So, Tim, what's, what are your thoughts around the... What are your thoughts around the placebo effect? Because the brain regulates performance. And we know from clinical studies that a person can take a placebo with if it's an exercise physiology study and, and do amazing personal bets. Are we saying the same thing here? Oh, no, no question. You know, what is so really interesting was that only one doctor ever wrote to me about the central governor theory from who wasn't an exercise scientist. And you won't believe it. It was A.V. Hill's grandson. So A.V. Hill's grandson, who's the professor of psychology at Cambridge. He's a wow. professor of psychology. And he was working on the placebo effect of drugs. How is it possible that you can give a patient a placebo and they suddenly get better? And he said it's because they've got a central governor regulating the health systems in the body. And he came up with a central governor theory for health. And he said, what happens is the brain decides, okay, we're going to now defeat this animal, whatever it is, the bacteria, whatever. And we're going to release everything we've got. We're now going to release it because why? We put a placebo, we put something in our tongue, it's going to help. Now we can release everything. And that was his hypothesis. And he said, you're the only one who come up with a similar central governor theory for exercise. So, wow. so I, that was his explanation for the placebo, is that the brain's waiting for some indication that things can get better. And when you take the pull, things are going to get better. So it says, okay, let's go for it. Let's try and kill this virus off. So if I try to summarize a few things that we've covered, the principle that the brain does in fact regulate performance has been established not just in sports uh, science but also in, in medicine with regards to other avenues like placebo when we look at how a master's athlete can prepare it's making sure that the goal is big enough it's clear it's attractive it's within reach with the right amount of physical conditioning and work we talked about the fact that the preparation not only prepares the body physically, but it also prepares your mental state to have confidence that you can trust in the process, rely on the work that you've done as a foundation to take you there. The work that you've done to prepare your equipment and your logistics to be on the race time. And then it's a matter of actually visualizing and being very clear on the outcome and giving your body the best chance of success rather than uh, sabotaging what could be a fantastic performance. And I refer back to your colleague, the triathlete, who actually looked around and he was in front and went, oh my goodness, I can win this. And there was no real difference, was there? He just believed he could. And so I think maybe some other tactics. I remember back to my days at Mossman Rowing Club, one of the coaches, Stuart Evans, where you never knew the duration of the prescription. Yeah. He said it would be not less than 30 seconds and no longer than three minutes, but he will just stay start. And when he called time, that's when you finished. And you also didn't know the recovery. So you just had to go all out. Yeah. And I think it was interesting, the, the performance there. That's the reality is you'll never produce your best performance under those conditions. 
you have to know the endpoint. Yeah. Uh, but interesting. It, it so I would have been else. holding something in reserve just in you case. So, Tim, uh, what are some of the books that you've gifted the most to others to positively impact others? Yeah, you know, it's probably I'm thinking mainly nutrition stories because that's kind of what's kept me going over the last the last 10 years. But And I happen to have some just right at hand. And I, it wasn't because I knew you were going to ask me that question. But these are people who become friends. Gary Talves, who wrote this unbelievable book, Good Calories, Bad Calories. Uh, the nutrition and he's just written another magnificent book the case for keto so when i read that book that was in 2010 2011 i thought you know how could we have got it so wrong and he explains why and then nina teichelt who became one of my expert witnesses and who wrote this book which was published in 2014 and 2014 was exactly the year I was first charged for being disruptive and not knowing what I was talking about. So this is... No, this is I know that book, The Big yeah, Fat so, Surprise. Yeah. No, She's an investigative journalist, right? Yeah, and this is an astonishing book. But I handed this to two of the people who attacked me, the Dean of Medicine and the Professor of Medicine. And I handed them this book when they... I said, you know, you really need to up your game and read this book. <laughs> Because they and then I also handed them the review, which came in with the review of the book from mm. the British Medical Journal. Of course, they paid no interest. There was no interest at all in the book. So those would be be two of the books. If I go back into sport, you know, the book that that probably hasn't been read so widely is called The White Spider, and it's a story of climbing at the north face of the Eiger, and it is unbelievable because it's these guys go up this and everyone dies going up it. And then eventually a group make it through. And it takes them something like four days to get through. But now the guy can get up in three hours. I mean, as you know, when you think- Yeah, early Steck went up in under three hours, yeah. yeah that's it. And, and you read these guys because it, it, no one's done it. And all the people have died and they go past these places where these people have died. So the, the white, and I read that because Ron Clark, <laughs> so you read it because of Ron Clark, yes. Who someone was interviewing him and he said, You want to know, you think you said if you think runners have a tough, just become a mountain climber and go and climb the Iger. And he suggested you should we should read that book. Some of the best books in running were written by George Sheer, who wrote about the psychology of running. And they were astonishing books. And I, I became a personal friend of his and wrote the forward to one of his books. And, and he was a medical doctor in the 1960s, started running, and he hadn't, he'd been a high school miler, but he hadn't run for 30 years. And he started running, and in the 1960s, no one was running, and the people said, are you mad? What are you doing? And eventually, he started running marathons, ran the Boston, etc. And he wrote a weekly column, and they were just pure genius, these things. And then eventually, the columns would become books. So he was, I think, my greatest inspiration for the people, if you wanted to understand the psychology of sport, he was the man who understood it and who could write it so brilliantly. So that, I think, would probably be the books that I've, I most advise people to read. The, in sport, the, would have been those books. In the yeah. last five years, what new belief, behavior, or habit has improved your life? So 10 years ago, obviously, I converted to the low-carb diet. But the last five years, I've become much more carnivorous. So eating very few vegetables and mainly meat now and because i had to kind of get to because the belief is so strong that you need vegetables in the diet that it's 
that to release the calves was easy, but to release the vegetables was a little bit more difficult. So I think that's probably the one. That's right, that's the one. And the other one, which you're going to enjoy, is I started doing CrossFit gym, which, which has been dramatic. And I'll, let me tell you the story there. <laughs> it's because it's a lovely story. I received a phone call from Greg Glassman, who's the man who started CrossFit in America. And he says, Tim, I want you to come to America and talk about Waterlogged, your book, Waterlogged. So I said, but Greg, you know, Waterlogged's got nothing to do with gym. It's about marathon running. It's not what you guys do. You do gym, high intensity training. He said, no, what's interesting is that he, his company had been exposed to bad science, that guys had manipulated and falsified data. They absolutely falsified data saying that CrossFit's dangerous because it causes injuries. And he was so upset by a paper. He said, this is not true, what they've written. He said, we're going to court and I want to see the authors and the publishers. And I want to see everyone who said, yeah, they were injured, all 20 of them. I want to see them all in court. And he took them to court and they realized there were no 20 injured player people. It was completely fallacious. And so eventually the paper had to be withdrawn and he, had to, he was paid a large amount of money for the falsification. But he said, you're the only other guy who's taken on industry. Because I took on Gatorade and their false their false advice about drinking during exercise. And, and so he understood that industry has to be challenged. And so that's why he asked me anyway. So he asked me to come to talk at his conference. So I went there and I, the, I was with, met all these people. And so one of them said, well, you've got to come to CrossFit gym tomorrow morning. See, So I duly did that. And I was not in great shape at the time. And I, so I went to the gym and I couldn't walk for five days after. <laughs> so I figured, well, when I ran Ray's marathon of, 56 miles you know I was stiff but I wasn't stiff like this so I decided I better better join it so so I started three years ago and I mean it's so funny because I had a fantastic session yesterday so now I must make this even funnier because one of my great friends is one of the world's greatest kayakers and he's recently had cancer and he's being treated for cancer and I mean he's an awesome athlete at, at 50 so you must understand this guy six months ago, was lying in hospital, almost dead. And, and you know, he's, but he's recovered completely. So we have fabulous sessions. And yesterday, we did a lot of rowing in our, on our session. And I got stronger with each row. And afterwards, the coach came up and said, you are looking in amazing shape. Because there's, so there's an open CrossFit, the CrossFit Open tournament starts in three weeks' time. He said, you're going to nail it. Boy, did I feel good. It's <laughs> the best placebo I could have heard. So, positive, positive yeah, emotions. Yeah, yeah. So I'll give you, I'll share with you one other, and it's a local, it's a gentleman from South Africa, one of my clients, his name is Luke Wollenschlager, and he is the world record holder for 45 to 50 years of age from the 1,000 meters all the way up to the hour on the yeah. rowing machine, and he's a carnivore. Yes, yes, yes. And, and an amazing athlete. And look, you know, it challenged my understanding. I had to do a lot of research. I actually went back to your book, Challenging yeah. Beliefs, to look at that. And I'd encourage, although people may have a, a position when they hear this podcast and they go, oh my goodness, that sounds very radical. Just inform yourself, go online, have a look. I'm not a carnivore, but I certainly periodize how I eat appropriately. And I think that there's a lot that we don't know until we inform ourselves. And then once we're informed, we can take some decisions that can, we can prescribe to change our lives appropriately. Yeah. And I think Luke is an amazing athlete, you know, two meters and a hundred kilograms. And 
he probably will see you him in the CrossFit because he's a CrossFit fanatic. <laughs> Can I ask you what in your unbelievable history of seeing athletes, amazing athletes run the comrades, you've met Oscar Chalupsky and other world champions. What is it that these highly successful people do that others don't? I mean, if we look at the physio, look at Chris Froome, my goodness, there's yeah. other athletes out there. But what is the X factor that these people do that others just don't that you've observed? Well, let me take you back 40 years to 1981. When I'm doing research with my group, we, we had very few resources, as I said. All we had was a, a scale and a thermometer. That's all we had. <laughs> so we decided to study guys paddling along the east, the coast, or the east coast of South Africa between the two towns, Port Elizabeth and East London. And so I arrived there. I know nothing about ocean paddling, absolutely nothing. But we decided we're going to weigh these guys before and after and measure their temperatures because we want to see if they're getting really hot and becoming dehydrated. So anyway, the night before the event starts, an 18-year-old gets up and he goes to the front of the audience. He says, listen, guys, you're all paddling for second. I'm going to win this race. And that was Oscar Chalupski, <laughs> who's now 58, but he was 18 then. And uh, of course, he won the race. But on the final day, they had to paddle 50 kilometers. And as he went through the surf, the surf was huge. It was about 10 foot. It wiped up his water bottles at the back of his boat were completely were taken off. So he had to paddle for five hours without any water. And when he finished, I knew he'd not, he said, you know, I lost my water. And I saw he lost six kilograms. And I said, well, you're going to be dying of heat stroke, you know, losing six kilograms. And his temperature was absolutely rock solid normal. It was 37.6. And of course, because he's paddling in a cold, cool environment and he's getting yeah. wetted all the time. Mm -hmm. So then I knew that the idea that you have to drink to prevent the heat stroke is, is nonsensical. So that's when I met Oscar. But then, I mean, Oscar doesn't believe he can't win. He, he believed... He, he will win. And the reason why he first came to me, because he put on a lot of weight and he would lose the weight before the competitions, before the Molokai Channel Challenge, he would lose the weight. And then he'd put it all back on again. And I mean, I've got pictures of him where he looks morbidly obese. I mean, not just obese, morbidly obese. And, and he'll laugh and tell you that. And we eventually got him onto the low-carb diet and he lost all the weight and now he's looking amazing. But that's how we first met. But he said, you know, even if I was fat, I could beat all those guys, those Olympic champions that you spoke about. But he said, as I got to 45, it became a bit more difficult. And then I had to do something else. Then I knew I had to regulate my lifestyle and change my diet. But there it was, you know, he at 45, he was competing against these youngsters. And he yeah. never believed he wouldn't win. And if he didn't win, he, there was a reason that the water wasn't good or he missed this wave or something. <laughs> but it, yeah. it was never... In a sense, it was never physically his fault. Physically, he should have won. But, yeah, there's something that intervened, but it's an unwavering belief. Absolutely. I've never met anyone as competitive and with such strong belief. And then when I look at the, the American football players, and I mean, we've just played the Super Bowl, and Tom Brady wins it for the seventh time. I never knew that he was, when he was selected in the NFL draft, he was the 199th choice. 199 stories. In other words, they thought he was pretty useless. And he's now the greatest quarterback there's ever been by some way. Mm. So, so what was it? Um, Joe Montana was the from the San Francisco 49ers. 
And I've got a lovely clip of him and, and what he did and so on. And I think they just have this incredible belief that they've got this physical ability and then they can read the game, but they have to have the belief. Yeah, that's a wonderful clip. I'm wondering if you could share it with me because then I can share it with the others. But I, I did watch that on the TEDx. Superb. Yeah. Superb. Absolutely. So you're back into CrossFit. What advice you would give a master's athlete wants to make a comeback, wants to get back into rowing? What would you advise they should listen to and what should they absolutely ignore? Yeah, I think that you, you know, you want <laughs> start slowly again and that's what I've done over the three years I've been in CrossFit we push our coach who who pushes me a little bit more but gradually and progressively mm-hmm. so that's important again it's like if you started running you don't go out you for the first six months it's just getting back into it and you take it very easily and I think that would be key but I think what you have to understand is that sorry what I've learned at age 70 I've got more muscle bulk now than I had when I was running it's probably because I'm doing weights uh, that, and I'm eating, no, I'm eating a high protein diet. But, but I've got, at 72, I put on muscle that you're not meant to at the age of 70. 72, you're meant to be sarcopenic. So if you're 50, there's no reason why you can't get all that muscle back that you had when you were a youngster. Yeah. Get in the gym. Yeah. yeah. And don't eat too much carbohydrate. That's the other thing, because you need the protein to, at my age, you need the protein to, to build the muscle. But the, the weight training, I, I think that, I mean, I promoted running for whatever, 40 years or so, but I realized that it's not the ideal. It's you do need the, the strength training. You know, what's interesting that in our crew that we wrote when I rode in an eight, the three guys who are the leanest and the best growers are still the leanest and the best growers. And they're still active in the sport. Yeah. That's wonderful. Tim, Thank you for your time. I just wanted to ask you if there's anything that we haven't covered that perhaps you'd like to, to raise or, or cover with me. Well, I'd just like to thank you. I've really enjoyed it. It's just flown by this time. I would, I would wish we could go on for longer. <laughs> Maybe another time. And, yeah. and finally, Tim, where can people find you if they want to reach out to you on the internet? Yeah, please go to the Noakes Foundation website. That's where you can find what I'm up to and what we're doing as a foundation. That's probably the easiest. So just type in the Noakes Foundation, N-O-A-K-E-S Foundation, and you'll be able to see what trouble we're causing. (laughs) I'd like to thank you again for your generosity of spirit and time and wish you all the very, very best. You're looking so fit and uh, (laughs) may it continue. Thank you for your time, Tim. Lovely chat. Thank you so much. Join me next time when I'll be talking with one of the rowing world's most interesting people. And if you like this episode, you can subscribe so you never miss an episode in the future. Oh, and please, if you like it, leave us a five-star review. That really helps us out. You can find out more about our unique training system and high-performance coaching by visiting whchambers.com.